Back from a great rest week, OG. How you feeling, man? Rested. While the Finturn was in here, great off week. And uh, you know why you felt safe and sound? Because of the Marines and their birthday and Veterans Day. How about that? All of those things last week. All those things. And uh, because of those things, and because we had a great off week, got to give a big shout out to the men and women of our armed forces, keeping us all safe. On behalf of the men and women here in the basement making the Stacky Benjamin Show, and on behalf of the fine men and women at Navy Federal Credit Union, a big shout out. Let's go stack eight weeks more Benjamins. How does that sound, OG? If we must. Let's do it. Here's the song that we'd like to do for all the younger set of people, the teenagers and what have you. This one's called Vacation Zope. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, your fearless tour guide. And if you're new here, welcome. Today kicks off eight weeks of new shows, and boy, do we have a great one today. What's the one thing we all don't like? Change? And what's the one thing that's 100% guaranteed to happen? Change. Today, we talk to Professor James Conklin about change in the workplace or wherever you are. And in our headline segment, the clock is ticking on your student loan reprieve. We'll speak with Amanda Honnell about what you should do to get in shape to start paying again. Plus, as usual, we'll share some TikTok craziness, throw out the Haven Lifeline, and dig into my amazing trivia. And now, two guys who are busy cleaning out the refrigerator on National Clean Out Your Refrigerator Day. Don't touch that leftover mac and cheese. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. Oh, gee, I think you got caught with your hand inside the refrigerator, dude. Yeah, because leftovers are my middle name. <laughs> hey, everybody, welcome to Leftovers are Safe Around OG Holiday. I'm Joe Salci. I average Joe Money on Twitter. OG across the card table from me, dug down at the other end of the card table, ready to protect the fridge at all costs. Nice job, Mr. Doug. You're giving me a seat at the card table? What's up with that, huh? It's a good day here in the basement. I moved to the adults' table. James. Conklin coming up on today's show, OG. We're going to talk about change in the workplace. And while we talk about not liking change, and I think Doug's got it right. It just, but, but did I say that out loud? Doug's got it right. We've got change all around us all the time. And uh, what do we do about it? We got that on today's show. We're also talking about student loans. OG, time for you to start repaying your student loans again coming up in January. They're ringing the bell. Can't wait. Excited. Ringing the bell. On student loans, TikTok Minute, some uh, weird stuff happened while we were, um, there was so much that happened, of course, on our off week. But first, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. 
Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. All right, James Conklin coming down to the basement. Amanda Hunnell from Fidelity coming down to the basement. Let's get this party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Student loan repayments start again in January. And uh, a lot of people, OG, I think are going to be surprised that, oh my goodness, my budget's changing. You think we're going to see a bunch of credit card debt now? I hope not. The nice thing about payments generally is that they're going to be pretty fixed. You know, I mean, obviously you have income repayment plans and that sort of thing, but that's only adjusted every so often. Uh, so we've seen wages go up uh, in different areas over the last two years and, um, you know, no payments for a while. So hopefully what's happened is what we suggested people do two years ago, which is keep making that payment if you're able to, to your bank account or to yourself. And now you've got 18 months or two years worth of payments lying around that you can now start setting up on auto pay, give yourself a little bit of a buffer if you need it, but then either increase the payment and, and see if you can't pay it off a little bit faster with that extra cash or you know, kind of have a two-year buffer for student loan payments. I want to dig into that more with you later because I think some people look at the interest rate on student loans and think, well, should I pay that off early? So we'll get back to that. But I spoke to Amanda Honnell from uh, Fidelity Investments, OG, about this very issue on uh, Dad Shortwave recently. And well, let's let's hear what she had to say because surprisingly, and this surprised the, the, the heck out of me, and I guess it probably shouldn't have, this is not just a problem for young people. Even baby boomers, Amanda says, have problems with student loan repayments. Baby boomers still dealing with this. This is what Amanda had to say. Baby boomers are actually the ones with the highest amount of debt if you look at their monthly payments. So everyone's hurting on this one. Well, let's dive into the study. You guys studied student debt and student debt repayment. Tell me why and what you found out. Yeah, we've been involved in looking at student debt for many years now because it's such a big financial problem for millions of Americans. We continue to monitor how it's impacting our customers, the general population. 
and really focused and saw that debt levels are increasing with baby boomers, Gen X, and that it's hurting their other financial priorities as they're going through. So the population with student loans has almost double the 401k loans as those without student loans. How about that, OG? More people with uh, student loan debt than with 401k loans by far, and the problem's still getting worse. Yep. Thankfully, the interest has been zero for the last couple of years on uh, federal loans. Obviously, if you have private loans, that's not been the case. But um, you just can't set it on a a 30-year payment plan and hope that it works out later type of thing. I mean, this is a debt just like anything else. And if you pay the minimum payment like you do on your credit card or something, it's going to take a long flipping time to be done. And it's annoying. So I think you got to treat it just like you would any other debt. This is not... This, I don't think student loan debt goes in the category of good debt in my book. People say housing debt's good debt or whatever, but but it still sucks. It's still cash flow that comes out of your pocket that you could be using for other things, especially if the interest rates are really high and you haven't had a chance to refinance yet. You have to treat it like every other consumer debt and just kind of really knock it out. We talk about, you know, you just mentioned good debt and bad debt, but good debt supposedly is debt around assets, right? Isn't an education an asset? Well, it is, but how many people treat it that way? Let's say that you're going to go buy a rental property, an apartment building or something like that, and you say, okay, I'm going to put $20,000 down. I'm going to get a $100,000 loan on this house. Then the rent's going to be $1,500 a month. Well, what do you do? You you make sure you set up your cash flow in a way to pay the loan, right? And if it's quote unquote good debt, you're like, oh, I want to pay it off over 15 years. I'm going to set this payment up and you account for vacancies and all that sort of stuff. How many people go to school or grad school, which is, you know, another major killer of of student loan increases and and say, "Okay, I'm making $50,000 right now. I'm going to go make you know, I'm going to go uh try to make $150,000 in the future because now I have an MBA or whatever the case may be, and this is going to cost me $150,000 to do, you know, to go to a good MBA school." And so you get your first job out of grad school. What do you do? You go buy a house, you get married or you have kids or you get a car or whatever. You're supposed to take that and turn it into, you know, you have to pay back the investment, but nobody does it that way. They go, well, I can defer my loans for a while. And then, and then you're 40 and you go, how the heck am I going to pay off? I got $280,000 of student loans. And this is not that clean always. I get that. That's kind of a broad brushstroke. No, but that's a great point you bring up, like just treating your family finances like you would if you were a CFO of a company. It's amazing when I used to talk at companies, the number of people that would do a great job being very analytical about how they did things for the company, but then they're not that analytical to your point about their personal loans, their student loans, the way they handle money that comes in the front door. We're, We're really good at wasting cash. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of different ways to handle this. There's no right or wrong way. You know, if you want to be a super budgeter, if you want to do the negative, you know, the, the, what does Paula call it? The negative budget or something like that. I don't know whatever yeah. she says, uh, you know, figure out how much you need to save and then, and then spend, you get to freely spend the rest type of thing. Put everything on one charge card and, you know, stay on top of that every week and kind of feel how the balances are going every week. Whatever works for you and your family is perfectly fine. But the one thing that you have to do is you have to track it. I was having some conversations over the last uh, three or four weeks and and a common theme with the folks that were moving closer and closer to financial independence was the day that they started actively tracking their net worth. And I don't mean like on a daily basis or a monthly basis. I mean, like once every six months, they filled out the Google Doc and said, just, you know, how am I doing? 
and saw a noticeable increase period over period once they started doing that. Because, you know, what you focus on gets your attention. If you focus on paying off your debt, you're going to find all sorts of ways to create uh, money, to create revenue, to be able to turn around and pay that debt off super fast. If you want to focus on, you know, blowing money, there's great ways to do that too. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, whatever you, wherever. Well, it's but, funny. I, I'm thinking about diets because when I've struggled on my MetPro diet program, Jesse, my coach, you know what she does? Oh, gee, she has me photograph my food whenever I eat and send it to her. And if I have to photograph it, to your point about tracking, if I have to photograph it, I won't eat it in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of different rewards and punishment systems, you know, that you can that you can put in for yourself <laughs> along the way. But what, you know, whatever it is that you're thinking about is what you're going to uh, put your energy and focus into. So if you want to focus on improving your net worth, then guess what? You probably ought to know what it is. Most people don't, you know, how much, how much, how much are you worth? I don't know. I don't know. So if you want to focus on paying off your debt, put a plan together and start doing it and see what happens. Speaking of putting that plan together, OG, I asked Amanda if people that had more debt and were bad with student loans and paying off student loan debt, if these are people that just generally were people that were bad with money. And here's what she had to say to that. I think it's a matter of financial hardship that we're seeing. So, you know, I don't think they're bad with money, but if you have a significant student debt burden that you're going through, there's obviously correlation that you can see with other financial hardships that you may have as you're trying to manage your student debt in order to pay it back in time. It turns out that one creates another, right? You, you enter you enter this uh, cluster of misery or this cyclone of misery OG with one loan and one loan leads to the next loan leads to the next uh, bad thing. The only way is through. Yeah, it feels like an escalator to hell. So Amanda and Fidelity Investments uh, put together a list of three things to do to get ready for your uh, repayment plan starting again in January. And here was her advice for getting ready to resume repayments. Yeah. So the first thing is you should know who your loan servicers are. People have had their loan servicers change over the course of the year. Then second, they should really make sure that their loan data is and their payment data is updated. So if you changed your bank account, if you have other things that are going through there, make sure that that bank account is updated, that your contact information is updated, that you know when these are going to start. And three, you should make sure that you're budgeted appropriately to, to handle the additional costs that are going to come through. So we know it's going to be impactful for a lot of people to have these payments resume. And so making sure that earlier on you can get these payments squared away is going to be important. Yeah, I think making sure that emergency fund's ready too when your budget takes a a hit here next month is going to be big. You guys have a student debt tool that I just went and checked out just before this interview. Tell us about it. How does it work? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a debt tool that's free for use for, for anyone to come through and to be able to look at it. It allows you to input your student loan information and to understand, first of all, where you stand with student debt. It's pretty hard with your multiple loan servicers to actually get a good, clear picture of that. And then it helps you understand how you can better manage that debt. So do you want to pay a little bit more to try to pay off your debt faster? Is there a better repayment plan for you to look at in terms of being able to lower your monthly payments? Should you explore refinancing? What are your options in terms of better handling your student debt and allows you to see that with your own personal data to better make decisions? We'll link to that tool in the show notes at Stacky Benjamin's 
Com for people that want to get their act together. So, OG, oh we covered the third one on her list, which was getting that budget in order. But really, those first two, knowing who your loan servicer is, I love that point that it may have changed uh, because it's been so long since you've paid it. And these companies trade them like kids, you know, back in the day used to trade trading cards. Uh, you're looking for Pokemon cards. That's the thing you're trying Pokemon, to Pokemon. Yes. You're trying to get to. All of Something us. more relevant and recent. Yes, uh, like I'll Doug and I used to trade Pokemon cards back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> it's, he doesn't even own that. He's like, and we didn't play Dungeons and Dragons in the basement either. We did We did not do any of that. It's a lie. The D&D's a lie. But back to your point, if you're focusing on tracking your stuff, right, it's going to lead to things like knowing who your servicer is, making sure that it's hooked up to the right bank account, like just this constant conversation, which is why I like that once a week meeting to look at your money. It doesn't have to be long. doesn't have to be boring. It can be quick, but man, if you just constantly look at it a little bit at a time, you'll, you'll bite that elephant off. Bite that elephant off. Is that a phrase? Yes, that's exactly the phrase, biting the elephant off. And I would add one more thing to her list. All that's, all that's fantastic. But also, since you haven't been paying on it, you probably also haven't thought about refinancing it. And if you still have a federal loan, I know a lot of people are kind of hand-wringing going, I'm going to wait and see if I get this taken away, if I keep it... A it's not going away. I mean, I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like that's a acceptable thing from Congress at this point. But we'll start looking at the opportunity to refinance the high interest stuff. You know, if you're paying six or seven percent on student loans, the going rate's now two to three. So if you're not in the two to three range, or maybe four, you should probably consider refinancing it. And now's a perfect time to do it because you've got a couple months before the program kicks in where you have to start making payments anyway. So Kind of do all those things with the budget, but then also consider uh, looking at refinance options. I spoke with Amanda about also about things companies can do to make this better. Fidelity, in fact, is a company that uh, helps their employees pay off their student loans. And I know that they're behind helping a lot of other companies help their employees pay off student loans. And it's a low cost way for them to retain talent. You look at all these people, OG, quitting their job. A great way to uh, to keep talent is to say, you know what, we'll help you out with your student loans and uh, adds a lot of value to the game. You can hear the whole interview with Amanda on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. You'll, you'll see that, get a link to our YouTube page where we have Amanda and I and our complete conversation there. Hey, it's time for our TikTok Minute where we take a look at uh, some of the craziness going on at TikTok. Sometimes it is completely crazy. Other times... It is uh, genuine wisdom. We see more wisdom on TikTok lately. I don't know what the heck's going on there, but this week, gentlemen, is it going to be wisdom or hilarity from the uh, TikTok minute? OG, what do you think? Uh, definitely wisdom. Uh, Doug? Hilarity. <laughs> we have a split decision. Let's, uh, let's see. And unfortunately, this week, you're just going to hear a little song, and I'll explain at the end of this uh, what the song's all about. This is uh, our friend Mark. Uh, who sent this to me via Twitter and said, we really need to talk about this one. And this is just a picture of a gentleman with some music uh, behind him. Uh, and by the way, this song talks about goodbye. It was nice knowing you for a long time. And he says, y'all, I put my entire net worth into Squid Game Coin what do I do? And it shows, of course, Squid Game Coin going through the roof. And then, I don't know, uh, OG, did you see this news last week? Uh, I'm aware of it, yeah. Yeah, Squid Game Coin, uh, hot new coin that's supposedly based on the hit Netflix show. 
the developers pumped it all up and stole all your money. And so congratulations to everybody who invested again in the Wild West. And we've talked about this before, OG, that it is the Wild West. But is that a reason not to get involved with crypto? Uh, I mean, when people create dumb stuff, you're going to get dumb results. So if you're not the creator of dumb stuff and you can, and you're not scamming other people, so that means somebody's scamming you. So how, how would you protect it against that though? Don't do dumb things. Don't, don't invest in squid coin. Maybe that's where you should start. But you've seen our forums before people are like, I'm not putting any money in Bitcoin. I'm not putting any money in Ethereum. We pass that point. I'm, listen, it is 1000% a, a speculation at this stage. The technology, I am beginning to think that it's more and more likely the technology sticks around. Whether or not that means that Bitcoin sticks around or Ethereum or Shibubu or... The chance of, of you, ones. though, being ripped off in Ethereum, I think, is zero. But did we know that back when Ethereum first showed up? Or did we know that about any of the of the others? And is this like the dot-com boom? Is this like 1990-whatever, six, seven, when... Nobody could look at it, any fu- any fundamentals about any of these companies. We didn't know what the tech was that they were built on. It was just a crapshoot. And some people got lucky and ended up with something that ended up going somewhere and becoming a stable piece of technology and a stable company. And others of us, not naming names, Doug, <laughs> uh, got screwed. So how do we learn from that lesson and apply it to this? I think there Asking is degrees. I think there is there is degrees of the Wild West, isn't there, OG? I mean, you know, you look at some of these established coins, and you're not going to get rich today on Bitcoin like you could have could have on Squid Game, where had they not stolen from you, that run up in that coin could have been absolutely huge. Something that that Bitcoin wouldn't have done the past year. Bitcoin, you still made tons of money, but in a little tiny coin uh, that people adoringly call what coin i think is the phrase they use yeah yeah it is speculation i mean you can also go make a 10-way parlay prop bet on tonight's monday night football game and have the same results no but i think some of the things to look at are the number of independent users using a coin right how many independent names own that coin number one number two is what's the market cap of that coin versus the usage of the coin i think there's some data out there that you can actually use even with the wild west to get to get around some of this. Yeah. I don't know. Thanks to, thanks to Mark for uh, s- sending that to us. And although all you heard was the music where somebody's telling us goodbye, see you later. See you later money. It was nice knowing you for the short relationship that we had. Uh, if you put all your net worth into squid game though, gee, I think you might have gotten what you, uh, what you deserve a little bit. Got what was coming to you. Coming up next, uh, James Conklin, I'm so so excited that we got James here. James has a new book out called Balancing Acts, and he is somebody who has worked with so many different companies on organizational change. And if you're somebody who is worried about change and gets freaked out by change, like a lot of people do, this is the person who you definitely want to listen to. He uh, has received awards from the University of Manitoba, York University, Concordia University, the Society for Technical Communication, served on several boards, including the Society for Technical Communication, Manitoba Quality Network, and Prairie Fire Press. It's funny, this week, I think it's uh, Canadian week here on the show, we've got uh, James Conklin. Good day, mate. 
Yes. Yeah, that's you'll go over great in Winnipeg uh, there. But uh, we've got James Conklin today. We got Corey Mintz, who is a food writer from Canada on, on Wednesday. So Canadian week here on the show. But before James Conklin, talk about change. We're going to change gears here. And I think uh, Doug might have some trivia for us. Doug? Hey there, friends. I'm the one you've been waiting for this whole time. This show's Oracle into arcane knowledge and host of the only entertaining part of this podcast, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. To all of you new stackers out there, look at you just building your little stacks. Someday, you too can aspire to podcast about wealth in an old t-shirt and flip-flops from your, your mom's basement. But I'm not here to brag. I'm here for what longtime stackers know is the best part of this show, my trivia. And in honor of today's weird holiday, National Clean Out Your Refrigerator Day, we're serving up some hot fridge trivia. Or should that be cold trivia? Yeah, probably should. There are lots of interesting tidbits about today's holiday. Refrigerators changed the meatpacking, brewing, and pizza industries. They also used to be incredibly strong structurally. In fact, back in 1939, Frigidaire featured an elephant, and we're back to elephants, standing on top of one of its fridges. But it was earlier than that, after hearing about a refrigerator that leaked toxins, that one of the world's most popular scientists filed a relatively surprising patent to improve the system back in 1930. So the question is, who was that inventor? I'll be back with some three-week-old sushi and your answer in just a moment. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Well, don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment's the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words... Your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money in the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Well, if you're new to Stacking Benjamins, you may not know that I've tried out a lot of personal finance apps. I like to be a guinea pig and try out all these things so I know what I'm talking about when it comes to uh, what's helpful and what isn't helpful. And uh, the app that I've used the longest has been Monarch Money. And it's because Cheryl and I, my spouse, were able to collaborate together. We can work on our goals together and our budget and our goals are right next to each other on the app. It is clearly the next generation of personal finance apps. So what is it? Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You create custom budgets track progress toward financial goals and collaborate with your partner. And now because you're a stacker, you'll get an extended 30 day free trial. When you go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. I love the fact that we get to collaborate. I love the fact that it's customizable. And I also love that it's this ad free privacy. You can trust. They never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch myself, I totally get why it's the top rated personal finance app. And right now, 
because you're a stacker, you're going to get an extended 30-day free trial to try it out like I try out many different apps. And this one was sticky for me because, well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. stackers there is something funky going on with my stomach that definitely had nothing to do with three-week-old sushi well this part's just going to go a little bit faster than normal because i got some things to take care of i'm joe's mom's neighbor doug and i'm wondering about this national clean out the fridge holiday do you think it should just be once a year i mean i'd like to think it should be at least monthly or maybe even bi-weekly who do we talk to to get this changed i'll go look that up later because right now i'm sporting the answer to your trivia question which was which of the world's most famous scientists filed a patent in 1930 to improve the fridge after finding out current systems were leaking toxins this was a relatively hard question but it didn't take e equals mc squared knowledge to know that it was old crazy hair himself alberto einstein who gets at least partial credit for the modern fridge Jeez, like that guy needs any more credit. Now, if someone would figure out a system to make sure OG doesn't eat my sizzler, all-you-can-eat shrimp leftovers, we'll figure out just exactly what all-you-can-eat really means. I gotta go. I'm percolating. And now, here's Joe and James Conklin. See ya! And here he comes down to the basement, my new friend, James Conklin. James, how are you? I'm pretty good today. Thanks, Joe. Well, you've been helping people change for a long time. And as you, you met mom upstairs, she doesn't like change. I was a financial planner for 16 years. My clients always knew when they came to meet with me that a financial plan meant change, right? People change at work. Change, I feel like, is the one constant. Why are we all so afraid of change? Well, I think, Joe, in part, it's because we can't control it. We make a plan and we think, yeah, I'm going to implement the plan and it's going to bring about some new state. And yet when I implement it, it doesn't quite go the way I'd intended. And we get discouraged and we get disappointed and we think, well, maybe it was me. Maybe I blew it. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm I'm not smart enough. And people don't realize that that is just the nature of change. Things don't go exactly as planned, as we plan them to. Instead, the key to handling change well is to be able to be ready for those unexpected things that happen, those setbacks and so on, and to make the adjustments and to carry on. But you still say in your book that no matter whether change goes the way you want or not, and you're exactly right, I I can't think of a change that I ever tried to make in my life that went exactly the way that I plan. But you still say that if you're a change agent, if you're leading change, it is important to show people the vision, to show them what you hope the mountain's going to look like, the top of the mountain's going to look like when we get there. Yeah, it's very important that we have some idea of where we're going. And so, you know, it's not so much that we need, that we need to have worked out every single detail that needs to be in place uh, for the new state that we're trying to work toward, but rather that we have a fairly good idea of what that state is. And what's more, this is really, really important, that it's a shared idea, that the people who are implicated, the people who are involved, share the same idea about where we're going. And one of the best ways 
to make that happen is to make sure that they've been involved in the conversation about what it is we're trying to do, what we're trying to achieve, where we're trying to go. I sometimes say, in part, I guess, because I cut my teeth on change initiatives that had a lot to do with new technology coming into workplaces. I sometimes say that the critical technology for change initiatives is also possibly one of the oldest human technologies that exists, conversation, simple human conversation. As we're entering into some kind of change process, we have to be talking to the people, the stakeholders who are going to be involved in that change. We're going to have to live it in some way. You you talk a lot about that, James, about how we kind of talk ourselves into change, right? It's the talking and the dreaming that creates the best change, the stickiest change. That's very true. In fact, some people like to say, I say this myself sometimes, that that when in an organizational setting, we're trying to bring about change, the first thing that we want to do is change the conversation that's going on in the workplace. There's this this wonderful story from uh, the early 1990s about when IBM was changing from being a manufacturing organization into being the service organization that it is today. And their then CEO, Lou Gerstner, was trying to get his executive team and the leaders in IBM to understand that we're not going to be in business unless we get out of this commodified industry and into something that is a growth industry. He's sitting at the table and the executives are talking and so on. And they're saying the same old things and he gets frustrated and he tells them all, shut up, everybody. Be quiet, everybody. I don't want anybody to say anything until you think of something new to say. Changing the conversation. And some people say that that was the real beginning of this massive change effort that IBM went through. And IBM went through a huge change effort and really became, to your point, much more of a consulting organization. And Lou, I heard, was also a very brusque Brus guy <laughs> during his career. That was kind of his thing, which, which is interesting. You begin your book by making a great point about that, that I want to point out. A lot of us are afraid of confrontation. And as you know, being a change agent with lots of organizations, and I think about even with families, people are like, well, I, I really don't want to be confrontational, but you make this wonderful point that you say, helping someone to change means that you're both confrontational and compassionate Talk to me about these two disparate things and how you mesh those together effectively. Yeah, Joe, that's part of the the whole basic idea of the book, which, as you know, is called balancing acts. I say that that successfully making your, your way through change involves certain balancing acts. And one of the balancing acts is this idea of balancing compassion with confrontation. It, it's, it's a simple idea, really. It means that we, we recognize that change can be very difficult for people. And that's a fact. And some of us who, who work in change roles in organizations, we get excited about the changes that are coming. And we think that others are going to share our excitement. And we're surprised when they don't, when, they, when they're more worried about things. The idea here is that we need to be sensitive to the fact that different people are responding to change in different ways. And some of them feel like they're going to lose something. They're going to lose the relationships they have at work. They're going to lose lose roles that they had that they really liked. And at the same time, though, as we're being compassionate, we need to move forward. And so when I say confrontational, I don't necessarily mean that you're going to be yelling at people or anything like that, but you are going to be clear and direct. You're going to be speaking the truth. You're not going to be wishy-washy about things or, you know, try to hide the unpleasant things from people. We're going to be direct 
and clear. And we're also going to be compassionate, understanding that some people are going to have real difficulty with the process that is getting underway. You you obviously work a lot with companies, but I think a lot of this also can apply to families. But I also think that there's a little bit of a difference. One question I always got from people uh, when they were trying to put their financial plan in place, one spouse would always tell me, they would take me aside. And by the way, immediately I would say, let's involve your spouse so that we're not doing this triangle thing. But they'd always say, you know, I've been trying to get my spouse to do a budget for years. And there's this whole concept that you talk about in the book of, I've been trying to get them to do this, getting somebody to do something versus changing with them. I thought this was powerful. Could you explain that concept? Because I think that even for families out there, James, this can solve a lot of these problems I see people have with changing the the financial plan at home. I think you're right. I think that this is an idea that can apply to any sort of social group that is going to be going through some kind of change. So it could be a family. I'm thinking mostly about organizations. Of course, that's that's what the book is about. But the idea there, there is that we can make a distinction when we're talking about change, that we're going to go through a change by doing things to people. We're going to impose things on people. We're going to those of us who have the power, those of us who think that we know everything, we're going to try to think things up and then we're just going to announce it. Okay, everybody start doing things this new way that that we've come up with. And what we have found with over the years and management scientists, social scientists studying this kind of change, when you do things to people, it's a rocky road that you're setting out on. Things aren't going to go that well. Doing things with people makes it easier. Doesn't mean it's we're guaranteed anything here. It just means that the process is going to be easier. We're going to bring people together. We're going to genuinely invite them into conversations about what we like and don't like about what's going on today and what we aspire to, what how we think things might be better. And we talk about it together. We make plans together. And then we set out on the journey together. And you say yet in some organizations, you 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 sometimes can't do that. I the, the, I love you talking about a surgeon. A surgeon can't really talk this way to the patient. You you know the same. I suppose to some degree you still have participation, but it's on a different level. Well, very true. In fact, a lot of my research right now has to do with you might say expanding the conversation of medical decisions to involve the patient and family members more in those conversations and decisions. So you certainly can continue to do things with people in all kinds of different contexts. But in that, in the case that you're alluding to, it was the time when I was working with a a group of uh, doctors and pharmacists and other people on a change process involving healthcare. I was talking about some of the discouraging statistics that there are about organizational change and how often things don't go the way that people are hoping it would go. And I mentioned that there's a number of studies that say that the success rate is only around 30% for big um, organizational change initiatives. And this physician who was sitting there said, uh, well, okay, you're, you're talking about that as though that's a failure, but in my work, working with patients, 30% success for a particular treatment might be tremendously good news. If the last treatment only helped about 5% of patients, getting 30% of patients to a better place for the treatment would be a tremendously good thing. And I must say, it was really interesting encountering that different way of thinking about change with a different population, different purposes, and so on, and thinking about whether or not I ought to change my mind about this a little bit. I was I was thinking about that as, as I was reading your words that I'm a fan of baseball and, you know, a 300 batting average is fantastic. You're hitting the ball three out 
out of 10 times and you're kicking ass while you're, while you're doing yeah. that. So I love that. But you also make a distinction saying that in, inside an organization, if you're batting 300, you're all going down this trip together. And on one hand, this is fantastic, but realize if it goes poorly, we're going to have to do some adapting because that 70% of the time where it's bad, it could be really bad. Yeah. For organizational leaders, it is a different story. In my opinion, it's not as though we can try different treatments and, and, you know, ad infinitum without uh, facing consequences at some point. It's rather that we need a change now in order to solve a problem right now or act on an opportunity right now. And the consequences of failure can be severe. So that is why this is such an important subject, organizational change and effective organizational change. That's one of the reasons why I emphasize that having a plan is important. It it is important. Going through a planning process about what we're going to try to achieve, being intentional, and that's the way I like to phrase it, being intentional about change is really, really important. But the most important thing is the process that we use to move toward the new state. It's the process that's the key. And that process needs to be a learning process, a process in which as we're moving forward, we're paying attention to what's happening. We're observing what's working. We're noticing what's not working. We're thinking about it. We're talking about it. We're gathering more data. We're looking at that data in order to make the adjustments that you can be certain are going to be needed during the change process to make sure that we do arrive at that final destination that we're all hoping for. Boy, I love this idea of a learning process because, as you know, so few people have a growth mentality and really are open to what am I getting wrong here? And I feel like if you go in with your eyes open, knowing that things are going to go wrong, then you're going to naturally have to have that growth mentality that we're all going to grow together. And it also, once again, presupposes that we are going to screw this up, right? But there's a question that I had, and I love the idea of organizational change in a company as being an ongoing thing for the organisms. And I want to circle back to that a little bit later about this idea of human systems, because I think this is an important part of your title that we really need to talk about. But how long do we give it before we give up or before we change? Maybe not give up, but before we start tweaking, do we decide that ahead of time? Because as you've seen, there have been times in my life when I have thought that a change that I made was not working and it wasn't having results. Luckily, I didn't change course because just as I was about to change, all of a sudden the change I was hoping for finally came, but it came much later in the game than I thought it was going to. It's such a great question. I've had those experiences too. And there's some who say that in fact, when we're moving toward a new state that's going to be difficult to attain, It is in the nature of systems to try to maintain the status quo. This is a hard thing for some people to think about. I want to turn back. I want to turn back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Go back. It's safe back there. We know what it's like back there. It's in the nature of systems to resist the change, to try to prevent the change and to maintain the status quo. So we know that's going to happen. For sure, that is going to happen. And what I say is that the process needs to include very consciously apart, where, as I said, we're scanning the environment, we're paying attention to what's happened, and we continue to be intentional in the face of the results that we are producing. One thing to keep in mind, you know, Joe, is that different people respond to change in different ways. And so when we're not considering that, we think we have a change, it's a good idea, I can lay out the reasons why it's a good idea, 
everybody ought to get on board and we should be able to move forward. But the fact is, we know that human populations, including, let's say, employees of a, of a large organization, can be segmented into several different groups. And some of those groups like change and they will embrace it and they'll get on board fast and others are going to be slow. And no matter what you do, they're skeptical by nature. They, they're going to want to watch and see and see how things go. And later on, they're going to get on board once it's clear that the promised benefits and so on have been actually delivered. So every change process, I might say, every change process is going to be unique depending on the context, the industry, the size of the company, the people who are involved, the urgency of the situation, and so on. Every change process is going to be unique. And to get to the point that you just raised just now, not every idea for change is going to be a good idea. Oh. So the darn thing is, sometimes it will be a good idea to turn around and head back to the previous state. Sometimes what you're trying turns out to be you know, maybe a fad that somebody heard about that has not really been tested and proven yet. And, you know, you're in danger of becoming the test case showing that it's a bad idea. So it might be a good idea. Have your eyes open, make those ongoing appraisals as you move and decide whether it's worth it carrying on. Mom says this shag carpet down here in the basement is a fad, but we're sticking with it, James. We are sticking. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. It might be a mom's side on that one, but okay. <laughs> we're not, we're not changing back, brother. I love how that point that you raise, uh, you talk about in your book about how this is why all change is local is and knowing what your audience is. And, and I love how you say just because it played in Albuquerque doesn't mean it's going to play in Toronto. It's going to be, you really have to look at your group of people. So I guess taking what I read in the book, that piece that all change is local and what you just said to me, it sounds like your answer is there isn't so much a timeline for change, but maybe a way that a list of criteria on which you decide whether you're continuing forward or you're adjusting? Like, is that a better way of thinking about it? Well, I'm going to say that there's, um, once again, there's a process. Yeah. There's, there are better processes and worse processes. But so the process doesn't have a set, it doesn't have set milestone dates though. It doesn't sound like you've dropped dead dates. Well, I, you know, personally, I think that it's okay if you're, if you're working in an organization that is accustomed to creating a really structured change process or change or structured project plan, it's okay to stay with what you're familiar with. Yeah, let's have milestones and so on, but let's also have that flexible generative mindset about it all and realize, like, I'll tell you what, Joe, I've been involved in some change efforts where after a while, it seems like the most of the resources, most of the time, most of the effort is going into maintaining an up-to-date project plan. And I sit there, watch this effort going on and thinking, guys, the fact that you're pouring all this effort into maintaining a document indicates that something has gone off the rails here. And we're not working on the actual change anymore. We're working on the plan for change. And you have to keep working on it because it turns out that the environment is different than you anticipated. And it's throwing curveballs at you all the time. I'm only smiling uh, and people that are listening to, to this can't see us. I'm smiling because I've worked for a couple big organizations that I feel like that happens all the time. I work for the university. We spent so much damn time working on a document. Nobody was going to read and it drove me crazy about change. And then I worked for American express for a while and it was the same there. I'm like, are you kidding? This meeting is four hours long. We're getting nothing done. Let's just get it done. So 
Uh, I want to end our conversation today on this. You t- and I, th- I thought this was incredibly powerful in our head. You talk about your own consulting and you have this wonderful graph uh, that shows uh, how your agency works and how it's worked over the years. And you show this. And then I, you know, people say they laugh out loud all the time, but I truly did laugh out loud when on the next page you said, well, that's how it's supposed to work. <laughs> But that's not really the way I've experienced this company. And we all have organizational charts. We all have the ways we think we're going to do things. But you talk about human systems, right? This is organizational change in human systems. Talk about that and how that's different than the org charts and the charts that you had there that that you built for your company. I mean, I guess I could say, first of all, that it's a natural thing for leaders, for managers to try to think about the company that they're responsible for in some kind of stable state. Otherwise, how can I manage it? If I can't picture it in terms of an organizational chart or some sort of work order flow chart or something like that, I don't know what the parts are that I'm supposed to be managing. So it's perfectly natural for us to uh, depict organizations like that. But and what I think it's probably, found- it, it, I think it's still, not to cut you up, but I think it's still helpful too, to your point. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely it is. There's a famous quote from Winston Churchill. He said that, uh, The plan itself is useless, but planning is absolutely essential. And I think that's the kind of thing he's getting at that. We're we're constantly trying to to take stock of the organization and what's going on and what's working and what's not working. And in order to do that, we are creating these visual representations very often that, that try to tell us about what's going on in the organization. But what I'm saying is that when you walk into the organization itself, and you spend time with people in the organization, you find that what's actually happening on the floor is not exactly the same as what is depicted in the various drawings and so on. And that's one of the reasons why it is so important in change processes to do things with people, to bring people into the conversation, because it's almost guaranteed that you will learn things about the organization that you didn't know. You'll learn things about how people in the organization are accomplishing their targets that you didn't realize. And it could be that the change that you're planning is going to stomp all over some vital little sub-process in the organization that if extinguished is going to cause major problems down the road. The thing about this that really was impressed upon me, James, was that we're all involved in change in whatever organization we're, we're in so often. And yet the amount of not studying it that I've done, I've, I, I never study the process of change. And sometimes I went, yeah, okay, that makes sense as I was reading along. And then other times I thought, why have I not studied this more? I'm involved in change all the time. The book is called Balancing Acts, A Human Systems Approach to Organizational Change. And I'm guessing it's available everywhere. As far as I know. Yeah. <laughs> you hope so, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for coming down to the basement and including us on the world tour for the book. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it too. Hey, this is Pete the Planner, USA Today money columnist and host of the Ask Pete the Planner podcast. When I'm not fixing the weirdest financial situations you've ever heard of, I'm stacking Benjamins. Big thanks to James Conklin for coming down to the basement. You know, it's true. The one constant we have, OG, is change. If you're somebody that doesn't like change, probably better to change that attitude. I feel like somebody should put that on a t-shirt or write a book about it. (laughs) Maybe. 
hmm. If the only, only constant is change. Oh, you know what they could do? They got to put it, let me make it like a parable, like about um, uh, just something small and docile, like a mouse or something. Oh, here's an idea. Somebody needs to write a book about a mouse who always goes to the same place to get his cheese, but then someday there's no cheese and it got moved. Maybe. And then he's really mad and other there's there's a whole whole hilarity ensues. That would be a funny story if somebody could come up with the beginning, a middle, and end of that. It'd be an interesting book if somebody would just do that. Uh Doug's back. Doug, you feel a little better? I am now. We've shall we say, uh, cleaned out more than just the fridge. The the fridge. And I think that's as far as we need to take that. So let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first, OG. Febreze. <laughs> one word, one word answer for the win. Uh, yeah, it's your loved ones in your time, but your loved ones in your time with some Febreze, I think is probably better. It's why they made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free quote. Application is simple. It's online. You get an instant coverage decision, affordable prices. And of course, you're not dealing with some fly-by-night insurance company. Their parent company, Mass Mutual, more than 160-year-old insurer. So you know that the insurance is, of course, there when you need it. Uh, today, we're going to throw out the lifeline to who? We're going to throw it out to Stan. Say hi, Stan. Hey, Joe and OG. I don't have much time, so imagine I made up a joke about the Sizzler. At any rate, you can call me Stan. I'm 31 years old, married, one child with one on the way. I make about 220 a year, can flex that up to 250 260 pretty easily. I max out my Roth 401k and have a 6% match into the 401k as well. I have no debts outside of my present house. I like the idea of early retirement, but I don't see myself slowing down for a long time. At any rate, I have a house presently that's valued conservatively at $380,000. I owe $240,000 on that house on a 20-year 3.125 fixed. I can, uh, I'm rather two years into that amateurization. I've had some land recently become available to me that I could purchase at about 170 and build on. I conservatively estimate that it will take $500,000 to complete the whole project. All of my estate planning is in order. I've got great disability insurance and great life insurance. I've got a will and all of that taken care of. My present child and future child are funded as it relates to college. I'm interested to hear if you think that the building idea is a good idea and would you dump the current house and take the equity out or would you convert it into a rental? I guess this is the part where I tell you my shirt size. Thanks. <laughs> but he didn't have time for the sizzler joke. He didn't. <laughs> oh, we got all of that detail. I know his blood type now, I think. But he didn't give us the shirt size, which is, which is good because Gertrude's going to send the code. But uh, yeah, thanks for the question, Stan. By the way, congratulations. Sounds like he's doing a lot of things right, OG. I love hearing about people that have their estate plan in order. What's up with that? We we don't see that nearly enough. But with regard to this house purchase, what are you thinking? Or this land purchase? Yeah, I don't know why you wouldn't do it. And whatever order of operations makes the most sense, make it happen. You know, I mean, if it makes sense to buy the land, build the house and sell the other house, move into the new house and kind of all works out in the wash, do it that way. If you want to move twice and, you know, go live in a camper while your other place is being built or something like that, like, that's fine, too. Um, I mean, I wouldn't do that. But if you have a ton of flexibility, why not use it? You know, that's what you have built this flexibility for. 
The only difficulty that I have around keeping the house, which I generally like, uh, the only difficulty I have there, OG, is is just the fact that for some people, being a landlord, not their favorite thing. I know for me, it wasn't. So I think there's also going to be a what do you what do you like to do there? Was he thinking about keeping the house as a rental? He did. He said. He said. He said. He might like keep it while we're doing this other thing. No, he said. Should I keep it as a rental or should I sell it? Like, what do you think there? Uh, And don't get me wrong. I like the idea of keeping it. I'm with you. I like that idea, but I also like the idea of you know for me selling it was the best thing ever for my son. Be something totally different. He completely want to keep that house and add it to his real estate empire. But um, I think there's a little bit of a know yourself happening there. Yeah. If this is for a rental, then yeah. I mean, you, you just have to figure out, is your place in a place that people would relatively with ease occupy all the time, you know, and with, and with low maintenance and you know what I mean? Like if you, if you live in the suburbs in a good school district in a nice community and there's a lot of people moving into your town all the time. Yeah, you could probably rent it pretty easily and pretty consistently. If, you know, in a different area where maybe it's not as vivacious or, or you know, there's not as much stuff going on and y- you got to walk to the school bus and, you know, it's just going to be a different supply demand issue. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so that's going to be harder to rent out consistently. And then the third thing is whether or not this place is even remotely close to the other places you're thinking about buying, you know, being a long distance landlord, like, you know, is very difficult even with help in your corner, you know, it's still, you're still dealing with stuff all the time. So anyways, that's entirely a personal decision. I would probably dump it. The one thing that I'm, I'm interested in knowing too, is what this move does. He didn't talk about his, where he stands. He talks, he talked about, you know, having his estate plan done, his insurance plan, it sounded like it was taken care of, his kids' college are taken care of. Not not really sure about what this actually does. He says he's interested a little bit in early retirement, but doesn't see himself slowing down for a while. Where is he at right now? Is he ahead or behind for retirement? And I think that that may also uh, influence his decision there, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I want to know where where I stand, especially when it comes to uh, single rental real estate property, because while the uh, NARI index comes very close to equaling, and that's the the REIT index, the North American REIT index, comes very close to equaling what the S&P 500 does over long periods of time, individual properties could get beaten up by the S&P 500. So I think you're putting a lot more variability in your returns over long periods if you're dealing with a single rental property versus investing in in a REIT, um, I think there's a big difference there. You know, guys, you focused on one part of his question, at least a part of his question, which was around should I get into you know renting out existing home. But I, I heard a different angle of that, which is I've got everything squared away, zero debt, everything's funded, other than the mortgage I have right now. Should I take on more debt? Not necessarily how you know how should I handle these two these two homes that I'll end up with, but should I just take on debt at all? No. Okay, so what do you got to say about that? Do it, do it, or not do it? Well, I think I'm not the guy to answer this question of the three of us, but but I I think that's also a personal choice, just like you talked about, OG, about you know whether or not you want to get into being a long distance landlord or not. Is what's your comfort level with that? with that extension. 
I think the interesting piece of that conversation, Doug, that it goes to a, a study that we heard just last week on the Rewind episodes when the Finterm was here, which with uh, Ashley Willens talking about time versus money. Like people, people look at and they value losses and money, but we don't value losses in time because in our head, we think we're going to live forever, right? Whether we do or not. And I think that, oh, gee, a lot of the time when people think about taking on new debt, they don't think about the difference in time. Of course, he said he's only two or three years into this new debt anyway. It's a 20-year loan. If he stretches it to a 30-year loan, his payments might remain the same or or close to the same. I mean, I haven't done the hard math on this and don't know how much he would he would take on in debt. But let's say that he stretched out to a 30-year loan. He may have very similar payments. He might even have smaller payments with, with that much time. I don't know. But that extra eight years of payments... Certainly today we go, yeah, I'm going to feel pretty good about that later, but you might get to that point then and your feelings have completely changed about debt. Yeah. All of this is going to be ultimately just kind of how you want to deal with all of it. You know what I mean? Like what's most important to you? If being debt-free and retiring super early is, is the most important thing, then you're probably not going to be accumulating payments leading up into that, you know? If it's important to have a homestead that more suits you and your family and accomplishes other goals, like, you know, you get to ride four wheelers all the time and go fishing in your own pond, then that's cool too. And there's, there's a trade-off There's you know, Paula always says you can do anything, just not everything, you know, and, and that's kind of the truth here for this guy, right? We can, he could probably do any of these things. It's just, he can't probably do all of them at the same time. So this is a great, a great time to be discussing this with your partner and saying, okay, well, like what's, what's more important to us, you know, over the next 10 or 15 years, is it more important to us to have this other property or this, you know, in all the stuff that that gets into, or is it more important to us to be able to be completely debt free and, and financially independent and so on and so forth. Thanks for the question. By the way, a great time to be thinking about if you do have to think about debt with interest rates, OG still low. I think it's probably a good time to be having those thoughts. Uh, StackyBenjamins.com forward slash voicemail is the Haven Lifeline. If you've got a question for us uh, and we will send you as a thank you for being brave and uh, calling up with your question. Same thing we're going to send Stan, mom's friend Gertrude, going to send out a code for uh, a shirt from our friend Brad who makes our shirts. And by the way, have you guys seen yet the tour t-shirt? I just got mine when I got home from vacation. Check this out. Thanks for stretching it across your chest like that, Joe. Well, I had really to. It was helped. dark. It was dark on the, yeah. <laughs> Is it cold down here, Joe? <laughs> I just want to know, are you wearing a, a tie-dyed shirt under, like, is that your normal shirt? Is it tie-dyed? Yeah. T- yeah. No, I mean, you've been sitting across from me for how long? Hey, look at this. I love podcasts. Yay. Joe's cutting diamonds over there. It's fan- fantastic. All right. Uh, time for us to say goodbye on that uh, kind of weird note. Uh, big thanks to a lot of people. Thanks to people that have left us a review of the show. Some just fantastic reviews lately. And we're so honored. Five stars from NC Podcast Listener. Great. Always learn something whenever I listen. Thanks so much for tuning in. And also, uh, Fight Fire W-I-T-G, fire. What's W-I-T-G? A typo on with? It, 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 it very well must be. 
of Five Stars Best Personal Finance Podcast. I'm an avid listener to personal finance content. Staggy Benjamins is the only show I do not cherry pick episodes and listen to every episode regardless of the topic. Joe and OG make it so entertaining and are so relatable. I've been listening since 2017. Won't stop anytime soon. Can't recommend enough. Oh, somebody's feeling slighted. Is that what that was? Yeah. Why is it that whenever you grab these reviews, you just seemingly randomly pick the ones that don't mention Doug ever? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. Just took two off the top. Mom's got them on the fridge. I just went and right. grabbed the ones off the fridge that mom's got upstairs. So if you'd be so kind to leave us a review wherever you listen to the show, that will let people know about financial literacy and that actually getting your house in order might be a little more fun than people that don't know about this think that it could be. Finally, if you are somebody who is looking for better financial help in your corner in 2022 and beyond, fair to say that now, OG, 2022 and beyond, now that we're in the fourth quarter. Oh yeah. OG and his team are taking clients to get to his team's calendar. You go to stackingbenjamins.com for slash OG and that will lead you to his calendar where you can interface with them to see how they can work with you to make better financial decisions in the future. All right. I think that's going to do it for today. Big show on Wednesday. We're talking food on Wednesday, the restaurant industry and some ugliness with employment, with your waistline, with so much to do. We're eating out at restaurants far, far, far more often than we used to. And uh, we're going to talk about all that with uh, food writer Corey Mintz on Wednesday. But for now, Doug, you've got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Well, Joe, since everybody went to clean out their fridges during the most boring parts of this show, I'll tell them what they should have learned. First, change. You're darn tootin'. Things are going to change at work and at home and in life in general. Better to find ways to cope with change and to excel in that environment than to wish change wasn't happening. Second, student loans. The bell is ringing, people. Time to start paying them down soon. So take advice from Amanda from Fidelity and put your plan together now. But the big lesson? Will someone tell Joe's mom that the word Doug doesn't appear in today's holiday title? It's called National Clean Out the Refrigerator Day, not Doug, go clean out the refrigerator today. I can't promise that there won't be one or like seven hot dogs missing when I'm done. Thanks to Amanda Honnell for joining us. You'll find Fidelity's student debt tool at fidelity.com. Thanks to James Conklin for joining us. You'll find his book, Balancing Acts, a human system approach to organizational change wherever books are sold. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC. Copyright 2021 and is created by Joe Salciha. Our producer is Karen Rapine. The show is written by the brilliant Paulette Perhatch with help from Joe and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. Know how I know how brilliant Paulette is? She wrote the words I'm reading right now. While she's not putting awesome words in my mouth, she helps writers power their work and businesses power their words. See how she can help you at thatwriterpaulette.com. After you listen to our show, check out our show notes page written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. Brooke and Joe also collaborate on a guide to the show and with lots of extras we couldn't include on today's podcast. Heck, they'll also throw in some life money lessons from Joe, and it's all free. It's called The Stacker, and you'll find it at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. Once we get all of this goodness bottled up, it goes over to our engineer, 
the amazing Steve Stewart, who helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to talk about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is our social media coordinator and room mother in our Facebook group, The Basement. So say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. She and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. To join all The Basement fun with other stackers, type stackingbenjamins.com slash basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, reminding you that cupcakes, yeah, they're just muffins that believed in miracles, so anything is possible. So, just back from all the dried turtles. Are they on display somewhere? Right. There, there weren't. This is the bad thing. We're out at, uh, and for people that don't know, I just got done going to three national parks. So, uh, scoreboard. But yes, uh, I don't know how many. It's a lot. We're up to a lot. We only have two on the East Coast. We, we were down to one, but you know, they have the new one, OG, in West Virginia now. So, uh, the new river. New. Oh, you mean you were down to one to do? We like were down to one all, that we except. had left to do on the East Coast, which is Congaree in South Carolina that we hadn't been to. But Dry Tortuga, yeah. The uh, one-star review for Dry Tortuga is you take a two-and-a-half-hour boat ride out there, you ask the guy, so where do we snorkel to see the turtles? And the guy laughs and goes, there's no turtles. <laughs> and Cheryl goes, what are, you, what are you talking about? It's called Dry Tortuga. It's it's turtles. Of course, dry turtles, right? Turns out the turtles want nothing to do with people. Number one, he said so. Every once in a while, maybe once or twice a year, people will see a turtle. But Ponce de Leon- <laughs> A turtle. A turtle, yes. They should have called it uh, a Tortuga, possibly, National Park. But no, you take this long, beautiful boat ride out there to this this uh, one of the biggest forts ever constructed by the U.S. military. And it's this huge, it's this huge, huge place. But when we went, we went out there, what we found out was that Tortugas is what uh, Ponce de Leon, when he found the island, called it. You know why? Because there were turtles all over the place. Over 150 turtles he got on that first trip while he was at the island. And uh, they had turtle soup, which is uh, reportedly delicious. It's very delicious. So <laughs> I capture all the turtles I can find. Get as many as you possibly can. Yeah. And then... Uh, it's like walleye fishing in Michigan. You get like one every time you go out, and then by the end of the summer, you got enough to have one fish fry. <laughs> After a full summer of fishing, yes, you got one fish fry. Yeah, well, I had no turtle soup, but he called it Tortugas just because of the fact that there were turtles there. He just wanted to, I mean, brilliant naming of, of the island. But the British renamed it Dry Tortuga. Not because of dry land, but because they wanted to tell people on the ships that there is no fresh water here. 
it is dry. You got to bring your own fresh water to this, to this place. So they had this elaborate system of catching water. But the wildest thing that happened was out on the Keys, OG. We stop at a state park and we're snorkeling on this park in, in this very, very shallow water, seeing all kinds of cool, we went snorkeling three times and it was awesome. And Biscayne Bay and uh, didn't uh, snorkel in the Everglades, could have snorkeled with the crocodiles and the alligators. We saw both, by the way. So we go snorkeling at this beautiful state park about halfway down the Keys, maybe two thirds of the way down the Keys. And I go to this changing area. They got these little outdoor changing areas. And one of the park rangers comes striding up. He, first of all, he drew a hand, sir. Oh. <laughs> he, 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 he wasn't that helpful. Well, he was oh. helpful, but in a very different kind of awkward way. He, uh, he drives up on a golf cart and then he walks. So he looks at us weird and we just thought, okay, he's looking at us and I'm spraying my, you know, spraying the, the sand off of my, my feet in the little outdoor shower area. The guy strides up, goes, sir, you can't be naked in the outdoors. No, he didn't say that. He stops right at the fence and leans over and goes, uh, sir. Yes. I mean, what do you say to a park ranger out of the blue? That's just kind of staring at you. He goes, sir. Yeah. Do you own a pair of green underwear? Why? Yes. Yes, I do. He goes, you dropped it on the beach halfway down the beach as you were, you were walking up. So it's sitting on my passenger seat. And I said, well, this isn't awkward for either one of us, is it? So nice. I got to show off my underwear for uh, the state of Florida. Best part of the trip. Green, huh? Green. Yeah. From our underwear sponsor. Gave us cool green underwear. And I was showing it off. So you're welcome, Florida. But I have to say that your job title, head of student debt retirement, like that's a badass use of the word retirement. How did, did you get to choose that word? Did you guys come up with that somehow? I mean, is there a story behind that? Uh, it's actually referring to one of our product lines that is combining student debt and retirement. No, but now, now no. I like it. I won't now be all about retiring student debt yes. overall. Yes. So that's my, you've made up my new title. It's where I'm going through. It's what I should say from here on out. Um, if there's, I'm in charge of making sure all student debt is gone from everyone forever. I was going to say, I love that. If there's somebody I got to talk to, to help you do that, Amanda, I'm on your team. I'm on team Amanda on this one. I love it. Well, Stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.